Welcome to episode 146 of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Rick Claw, editor, anthologist, columnist, and bookseller. Claw is the editor of the recent anthologies Ray Guns Over Texas and The Apes of Wrath. Stay tuned for my interview with Rick Claw. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Rick Claw, editor of the new anthology, The the Apes of Wrath. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Jeff. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about The Apes of Wrath yet, how would you describe the anthology? Well, it's a, it's a collection. It's actually a more of a, it's a literary survey of apes and literature. Apes have had a long history in literature, going back to Aesop, um, and have been part of literature ever since. And so I wanted to do an, an anthology that kind of showcased all this. But also along the way, I also wanted to touch on other aspects of apes and pop culture. They've been a big part of pop culture as well, as anybody who'd seen Planet of the Apes would know, or the continued popularity of King Kong. Um, and in the book, I also, besides the 17 stories, I was included four essays on different aspects of pop culture. Sure. And do you remember how you originally um, came up with the idea of the theme of Apes of Wrath? Uh, you know, I've always loved apes since I was a small child. Um, so it's just one of those things that I, I've always found fascinating apes. And there's only been one other ape anthology ever. Uh, oddly, there's only been one other before this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought it'd be kind of a cool book to get together. I got, I used to always explain to people, you know, I'd always go on, you know, loudly and vociferally, vociferally, am I saying that right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, about, you know, how important apes are for, you know, in, in pop culture and in, in, in their ass and their, you know, and how you know, there's apes in all these different parts of culture and people look at me like I'm nuts. So I said, you know what, I'm going to put a book together on it. And originally, I was shopping around a pop culture history of apes, and I didn't get that much traction for it. There was some interest, and I've written some essays about it. Uh, but then I was talking to Tachyon, and they were interested in me doing an anthology for them. And we had gone back and forth on several different topics. And I, and I said, hey, what about this apes anthology idea? And at first, I rejected it, and then I talked Jacob into it, Jacob being the publisher right. of Tachyon. And and so, as you mentioned, Planet of the Apes is probably the most well-known popular culture example of, of anthropomorphized apes. Why, yes. do you, why, why do you think we're so fascinated with apes? Well, part of it, apes, they represent, they're, they're mirror, cracked mirror images of ourselves. Of anything in the animal kingdom, they're the most like humans, of course. You know, the, you know, the, old, saying, the old thing about 98% of our DNA is like a chimp's. All that, and you can see bits of humanity in apes. Uh, you can look at them and say, "Hey, we act like that." You know, we 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 do that same kind of motions in our faces and our hands, and you know, they live in groups, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it, it enables us to tell stories for good or ill that we couldn't tell about ourselves, but we can use apes as our proxies tell these same stories and we can identify with what they're doing. It's one of the reasons like Rise of the Planet of the Apes in particular works so well is we could all understand what was going on in Caesar's head. 
the alienation, the being, you know, kind of the outcast. Um, and we all understand that. You don't have to be an ape to understand that, especially when you're dealing with geeks, sure. geek culture. Um, you know, we all have that kind of feeling. And, and what did you what did you think of Rise of the Planet of the Apes? I loved it. It's one of the reasons I have, uh, you know, um, Rupert Wyatt doing the introduction to the book. Um, Rupert uh, was, you know, I loved the movie so much and I was I wanted him to be part of the book. And so I contacted him and he was thrilled to be doing the introduction. And I was thrilled to have him because, like I said, he understood. And the introduction or the foreword, technically, that he did for the book shows they really understood what what I was trying to do with the apes. And um, it was a perfect person to do the foreword for the book. That's great. Um, Are you currently working on any other anthologies? Um, Actually, I am. I did a book for um, FACT, which is the Phantom Association of Central Texas called Ray Guns Over Texas. And I've actually turned it in. It's a um, an anthology of original Texas science fiction, uh, sorry, original science fiction by Texas authors. And um, it's uh, 19 original stories, I believe. And um, it, it was fun to do. It's the first time somebody's done something like this since um, the, uh, the 1980s. Um, and, and, and who are some of the contributors to that? Um, uh, Stina Leaked is in there. Uh, so is, uh, Brad Denton and, um, you know, you ask these questions. I can't remember. You know, it's funny cause when you're done with an anthology, it's weird when you're editing an anthology, you, when you're done, cause I've turned this book in right? and until the book comes out, your brain goes elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And you say, okay, I'm going to work on something else now. So you put that all aside. Um, Mark Finn is in that book. Um, Great. Do, do you yeah. do you have a tentative publication date on that? Yet? Yes, that book is coming out at Worldcon at uh, Labor Day weekend, which is in San Antonio this year, okay. the World Science Fiction Convention. Yep. And that was one of the reasons they wanted to do it was Great. to have the book come out then. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, but yeah, it was it was a fun book to put together. And uh, uh, Neil Barrett Jr. is in the book, of course. Joe Lansdale's in the book. Michael Moorcock is in the book. It's all starting to come flooding in now. Yeah, those yeah. are all original stories from them. Great, um, great. We'll, yeah. Uh, we'll look for that when it's out later this summer. Well, I know that yeah. you've written essays about science fiction, comics, and you've also worked <laughs> as, as an editor. You edited Weird Business, a hardcover comics anthology, as well as many other books. Uh, mm-hmm. what, are, what are you reading these days that really excites you? Are there any comics or novels or writers that you feel aren't getting the attention they deserve? Well, there's always some. You know, it's funny. I just... Uh... I was just looking at Zoran Zikovich again, who I hadn't read in a couple of years, but there was an interesting magazine, uh, International Science Fiction, had a, um, it just did a thing about him. Zoran's a, um, I want to say Bosnian, but I think he's a Chechen. I'm getting confused there, but he's, he's from the former Yugoslavia and he's an amazing writer. Right. Uh, and then there's, uh, they just reissued uh, a Gerald Kirsch book, Nightshades and, Opera- Nightshades and uh, Operations. Which is what am I looking? No, sorry, Night Shades and Damnations, um, and um, it was just been reissued. And Gerald Kirsch is one of these forgotten writers. He's firmly in that you know Bradbury, you know that kind of Twilight Zone stuff that in the fifties and sixties. Sure. And they sure. just reissued a bunch of his stuff, and it's amazing his stuff. Do you know who did the reissues off the top of your head? No, I don't because yeah. I don't have it yeah. in front of me. And uh, it was a small press, and right. you know. 
Yeah, I'm being I really that Harlan Ellison different. has talked about the influence of Kirsch before. Right, and it's actually well, Nightmare Nightmares was uh, is I think this is only the first time it's, it's the first time it's been reprinted since its original printing back in '69, which Ellison did the introduction to. Um, uh, Kirsch, of course, was also a influential. Uh, he wrote uh, Night in the City, the famous mo- crime novel, mm-hmm. became a movie um, in the '50s. Um, more recent writers, I'm a big fan of Jeff Vandermeer's, but that's not like a secret to probably anybody that listens to your podcast. Right. Um, not that I'm, you know, um, you know, and full disclosure, I've worked with Jeff. Jeff had me in a couple of his anthologies. I did stuff for his steampunk anthologies. Sure. Uh, two different ones. I was in the um, the uh, steampunk Bible and the original steampunk book. Um, Comic-wise, it's interesting because I write a monthly column about graphic novels, and uh, there's several things. I'm a big fan of... Um, Colin Bunn's, um, uh, why am I, ha- I'm just not doing too well this morning. I'm, re- I'm not remembering this. Oh, <laughs> Six Gun. Sorry. The Six Gun, which is a, a horror Western, which is actually a subgenre I'm particularly fa- a fan of. Um, I was remember right this morning, I was rereading Dead in the West. Lansdale's Dead, uh, it's Dora Lansdale's a horror Western. Sure, sure. Which is being reissued in, which is being reissued in paperback. As Dead Man's Road with a bunch of other stories about the preacher uh, by uh, Tachyon later this year. And um, I'm, let's see, comic wise, I'm also, uh, let's see, I'm, trying to, I'm looking over my shelf here. Uh, Chew yeah, is yeah. quite a book, book that I like quite a bit, actually. What was um, that? Which, Sorry, I missed it. Chew uh, is an interesting book. Chew is a, um, it's C H E W, just like a, you know. Too. Uh, it's by John Lehman and Rob Gilroy, and it's in a, in a reality where uh, poultry is illegal because of swine flu or bird flu. Sorry, not swine flu. Because of bird flu. And they, so all chicken is illegal, and the FDA has all this power, and it's about two FDA agents. And one of them has the ability to uh, bite into food, bite into things in food and see its entire history. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, especially when he's investigating a murder and cannibalism comes in. Sure. It, it's a very interesting, you know. And, you know, there's some standards. I like I, I like League of Strange Gentlemen, uh, the uh, Alan Moore's, you know, his alternate reality, his literary alternate reality, you know, kind of like the ultimate mashups. And um, I'm also a big fan of older stuff. Kirby is one of my all-time favorites. Sure. Jack Kirby stuff. And with all the massive reprintings of his stuff, I've been very happy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... That's kind of the stuff I've kind of been reading. Uh, right. There's there's other stuff, of course. You know, I, I like I said, I read I, I write the column for SF site every month, so I read quite a few graphic novels. Right, right. Well, well, yeah. obviously, comic book movies are now huge blockbuster movies at the box office. Um, are, are any of the? Did you have you liked any of the recent superhero movies? Yeah, um, some I've liked. Um, actually, I Iron Man three I enjoyed a lot. Um, I thought it was a, a nice, you know, it, versions of Iron Man are quite good. Avengers is very good. It's interesting because Marvel seems to have really um, understood the tra- how to translate their stuff to film. And while DC seems to have just the opposite problem, uh, outside of Batman, nothing they've done has worked. Sure. Um, and even the last Batman, I, I'm on the other side of the fence and a lot of people, I don't think the last Batman film worked. I don't think it was a very good movie. Um, I, I thought it was uh, got too far away from Batman. Batman should not work on a global scale. Batman works on a on a local scale. Um, 
and Superman's just the opposite. He works on the global scale. And um, the new Superman movie, I'm kind of, I'm real hesitant about it because I, I don't think Zack Snyder's a good director. I, I thought his Watchmen was awful. And um, I don't know if he can do a good Superman because uh, Zack Snyder's movies all lacked heart. You know, it's, it, they, they lack any compassion or humanity. And that's what Superman is about. Superman is all humanity and all compassion. Right, right. And I don't know if Zack Snyder can pull it off. Interesting. Well, we'll have yeah. to see in a few weeks. The, the trailers look great. I, yeah, I'll say yeah, that. They do. Yeah. Um, so, so what impact do you think that these movies are having on the actual comic book industry, the monthly comic books? Well, the biggest impact, actually, the monthly comic is not them, but the uh, digital market. Um, comics have really made that jump to digital. So uh, with the rise of the tablets, they, people are now, you know, downloading their monthly comic, their weekly comics, and then buying the collections when they get done. Um, and that's had a bigger effect. The movies, I mean, they have an effect. Um, but there are people that will see those movies that will never read those comics. The same thing, there are, you know, a zillion people will go see, you know, The Great Gatsby, but how many of them are going to read the book? Sure, sure. You know, they, um, you know it's not going to hurt the sales, of course. But it may not help. Also, comics, one of the problems with comics industry we've had for a long time, it's hard for somebody to just walk into a store and start reading them because they have these long, convoluted histories. Right. And so it can be difficult to get new readers that way. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's helping to some degree. Um, mm -hmm. The exciting thing for me is that you get more mainstream books. You get books, like you go into, con into bookstores and uh, you see rows of graphic novels now. You don't go in. It's not like it used to be. You know, when I did Weird Business, which came out in uh, in 96, 90, yeah, 96 or 95, um, there weren't really graphic novel sections in, com in bookstores. And when that book came out, and oh, I should probably tell you, Weird Business, to people that are listening, have no idea probably what this is. It was a 420-page a hardback comic anthology that I co-edited with Joe R. Lansdale. And we had all these big, um, science, all these big fantasy and horror writers in it. <clears throat> of the time, like Charles Delint did an original story. Nancy Collins, who was really popular at the time with her vampire stories, did an original story. Uh, Poppy Z. Bright, who was really popular then, did stories. F. Paul Wilson's got an original story in there. People like that. Mm -hmm. And um, when the book came out, it's a, it's a big hardback. And it's $30, which at the time was a lot of money for a graphic novel. And I would go in the bookstores, and I would find it like in the humor section. <laughs> I would find it in the kids section, you know, because it's got pictures in it, but it wasn't for kids in any shape or form. There was no way you would want, I would feel uncomfortable giving it to a child. Okay. Uh, it's just not for children. And, uh, because, but they had no place to put it. They didn't understand what it was. And, uh, and of course we had just the opposite problem with comic book shops because <clears throat> comic book shops didn't know what to do with it either. Um, because they weren't used to selling things that were hardback in, in that price point. Right. And I still remember having a discussion with a comic book shop owner. And I said, tell did you order a weird business? He goes, yeah, I got, I got, one, I got two in. Well, how did it sell? I sold two that first week. Great. Did you reorder? No, no. I, I was just thankful they sold. <laughs> really? I, get, I, I was like puzzled and, because at that time, two, two volumes of weird business was like selling 100 issues of X-Men. And I'm pretty sure if they sold 100 issues of X-Men in a week, they would reorder. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, in a, 
So yeah, um, it was interesting. So now, of course, I go into shop into bookstores. They're everywhere. Graphic novels, and they they market them right. They look, you know, they're in the right places, all that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, so what do you think of the transition to digital with comic books? Uh, um, I'm still, I still prefer comics. Reading them, um, I read some digital. I can read a lot of digital actually, uh, because of the nature of what I do. Right. Um, but you know, it's like anything else. Uh, you know, if it keeps the, if it keeps it alive and viable, then it's great. Sure. You know, it's the same thing I have feelings about the ebook. You know, people reading books. My biggest problem with actually with the ebook is that ebook ebooks are not actually books. But that's a whole different discussion. They're just you know, books are actual physical objects. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, um, I just think the word's wrong. But I don't have a problem with it because it, it it's allowed a lot of obscure books to come back and print a lot of writers that people don't know about. Like you can get almost all of Neil Barrett stuff now digitally. Okay. Right. Neil Barrett's a really talented writer, really amazing writer, but a lot of his stuff's been out of print for a long time. Um, I just I saw the other day through Darkest America, which is one of my favorite books of his, post-apocalyptic book, and it's back in print. And I was just so I was like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> you know? And it's back in print digitally. Right. Yeah, it's like a dollar ninety-nine, something like that. Mm-hmm. $2.99. But I just I like that chance that these things can get back in the print. And people can read them sure. because really that's what it's about. I don't agree with a lot of like I, I think DRM is evil. Right. Um, I'm a big believer that you know op- that people should be able to have access to things. And also, my biggest problem is the way people learn about books. And this goes back to my book selling days, and uh, uh, which I yeah you know, I, I was a bookseller for 20 years, and uh, they uh, one way the biggest way people learn about books. Is when people friends give them copies of books. I mean, everybody, you know, somebody your friend gives you a copy of a book, you're like, oh, this is great. You read it, and then nine times out of ten, if you like it, you're going to buy another book by this author because you like the book that your friend gave you. But there's no way with digital books to just give your books away. Right. Right. I can't just you know if I say, hey Jeff, I'm reading this book, I love it. I can't just give it to you. <laughs> I'm able, to, uh, you know, on Amazon I can loan it to you for two weeks. Big deal. I'm talking about, you know, I should be able to give you the book. It's my, I bought it. I own it. I should be able to do what I want with it. Exactly. Yeah. With physical object. And that is my biggest problem with it. And, um, I, I think it's, I think it's a real fallacy and it's going to hurt the industry in the long run. Um, because it's, it's going to prevent new readers from coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be harder for authors to get new, new readers right. because of it. Right. Um, and cause it's, I mean, we've all seen it happen. It's happened. To, it's personally happened to anybody who reads books. It's happened to all of us. You know, somebody gives you a book to read. You go, hey, great. You know, um, and and also the excitement that people have when they give you books to read. You know, and all it just like I said, it just changed things. It's, it's funny because one thing I love fifties pulp novels, and one of the hardest things to do is find them in good shape. And the reason is because people would buy them, just give them around to their friends, and these things would be read to death. Right. You know, and they'd fall apart. That's why you can't find them in good shape, you know. So that whole culture is gone. But I do think that ebooks are a good idea because it keeps things going, you know. And it's it's cheaper. It enables things to happen. Um, you can take publishers can you can take a bigger chance on an ebook. Um, I also think that they need to change the way they're paying people for ebooks because publishers are taking too much money because the overhead's so ridiculously low on an ebook. 
why should the percentages be the same? Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, but you know. that's not why you brought me here. You taught me out here by talking about apes, I think. <laughs> well, well Sorry. You, you mentioned your graphic novel column. Are you doing any other uh, regular uh, uh, columns or, or, or um, essays that we should look out for? No, not really. I mean, I do things here and there. You know, um, I write, you know, I, I, I blog at, um, for Revolution SF. Um, I was a, one of the original editors there. I was a fiction editor for Revolution SF. And then I stayed on as a contributing editor over the years. And I write reviews for them occasionally. And I do, re- you know, um, I, nothing really at this moment. There's some people that I've talked, I just had to talk, interview with somebody yesterday, interview, I guess a discussion about possibly doing some reviews for another site, but I don't, you know how it is until I actually start doing it. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I am, we're oddly, I'm doing a lot of work for the San Antonio Business Journal, which would seem to be completely off my <laughs> usual review, but I've been writing for them and uh, it's been interesting doing work for them. It's completely different. Uh, you know, no geek writing at all there. Right. right. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but you know, it it pays the bills and, you know, it's kind of fun to do. It's different. I like being able to do different things occasionally. You know, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, as much as I like, you know, apes and all that kind of stuff, you know, every once in a while you want to do something different. It's like the site I was talking people I was talking to yesterday, I would give a chance to review non geek films. And one of my things is I love a really good romantic comedy. They're so rare. And, you know, so going out and be able to review some once in a while, that's great. That's great. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, because, you know, well, as they say, you can't live just on steak. <laughs> Every once in a while, you have chicken there. Exactly. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's uh, things things like that. Um, one of the things I will mention about The Apes of Wrath we were talking earlier, mm-hmm. and um, – one of the proudest things, one of the things I'm proudest about this book is I think I'm the only person to ever published an anthology with Gustav Flaubert and Edgar Rice Burroughs in the same book. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, what, what was the first name? Sorry, I didn't catch. Gustav Flaubert. You know, wrote Madame Bovary. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think I'm the only person to ever published an anthology with the two of them in it. You know, Flaubert is <laughs> this major literary writer, and then there's Edgar Rice Burroughs. His story, actually, in the book is the creepiest story. I don't know. I don't know if you've read the book or not, but it's the creepiest story in the book. It's a Flaubert story. It's a, a story he wrote when he was seventeen about a uh, an anthropologist who breeds a uh, a uh, a slave with a uh, an orangutan, and uh, it, the, the story's about their child. Wow. So, so and, how did you, how had you, had you read that before? How did you know about that? I'd actually not, it's interesting. I read, I read references about it. It's only been reprinted once in English before this time. And, um, uh, I found references to it and I actually had never read the story. Um, uh, but I found the French edition of it, French version of it. And I, and I was like, well, I'm going to get translated and I'm going to put it in the book, taking the chance that it was going to be good enough. But everything I had read about it was like, oh, this is, I've got to have this in my book. If I'm going to do an eight book, I've got to have this story. And it is so creepy. Uh, it's so politically incorrect. And, you know, but it was, uh, it turned out to be a wise choice because it is, it's an amazing story. And um, it, it, it really, you know, it's funny. Um, I sent this book to my mother-in-law and uh, she calls up my wife and she said, she's talking about how she thinks she likes my book. And she told her, my wife though that, 
I should make sure I never send her another book with interspecies with sex in it ever again. <laughs> I thought, wow. Okay, I'll, I'll see if I can put the, I'll check. Not on the list anymore. And I'm sure it's because when she got to that story. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, really, there's some other stories dealing with interspecies love, but there isn't like sex, per se. In that story, it's, it's in that story. Uh, you know, the, yeah. So I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll remember that. So the next anthology I got, there's no interspecies sex in it. That's so okay. it should be okay. I try not to have – you don't want that in every anthology. No, exactly. Well, well, again, <laughs> we've been speaking with Rick Claw, editor of the new anthology, The Apes of Wrath. Rick, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, sure. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.